laid down under a tall oak tree and looked up into the tree. You see branches and limbs and leaves. They're all overlapping each other. And it's really tough to tell which limbs are on the top and which limbs are on the bottom. Distance between the branches is really impossible to judge from the bottom of the tree. It's just sort of a maze you look up into. Sorting out the details are very difficult. Well, this is how it is with prophecy in general and with Isaiah in particular. Some of what Isaiah saw was local and current in the days of Assyria. Parts of his vision wouldn't be fulfilled for another couple of hundred years when God would send the Babylonians to judge the nation of Judah. Still a vast portion of Isaiah's prophecy has yet to be fulfilled. Isaiah saw events that won't occur until a time yet future when Jesus returns to the earth and establishes his kingdom. And it's this overlap that makes the book of Isaiah tough to interpret. In fact, I'm sure that Isaiah himself didn't fully understand all that he saw. Isaiah chapters 2 through 5 are a single prophecy. Isaiah 2 verse 2 says it concerns, quote, the latter days. But it also spoke to the current situation. Assyrian troops were parked there in the suburbs north of Jerusalem. It was a time to be alarmed. And as with most all of Isaiah, our comments tonight will bounce back and forth from local to distant. From local situation to distant prophecy. So it is when you're looking up into a tree or when you're looking out into the future. Well, in chapter 4, verse 1. Isaiah predicts a man shortage. He says, and in that day, seven women shall take hold of one man. Seven women to take hold of one man. In wartime, men in battle, men die in battle. And young women are left without available men to marry. And it creates a man shortage. And that's what Isaiah is referring to here. Of course, this also has happened today on, a marriage, on American college campuses, believe it or not. Did you know that in most non-engineering schools today, women now far outnumber men? I read where the University of Georgia's undergrad population is now 57% female. At the College of Charleston, the percentage of women is 66%. And this too is due to a war. Not a literal war, but a battle of the sexes. You see, our culture's pro-female bias has actually backfired on women. From kindergarten upwards, school is geared more toward the women than toward the men. It's weighted in favor of the females. And yet the price women pay for, for winning the battle of the sexes is a smaller pool of educated marriage partners. Here's the irony. When men are deprived as the role of leader, women ultimately suffer. Rather than compete, the sexes need to complement. Well, here Isaiah says that seven women will grab the arm of one man and they'll say to him, we will eat our own food and wear our own apparel. Only let us be called by your name to take away our reproach. In other words, the women become so desperate to get married that they're willing to let the potential husband off the hook. He doesn't even have to offer them a good deal. 
He doesn't have to provide for his family. The wife says, hey, if you'll marry me, you know, hey, I'll, I'll work a job as well as birth the babies and raise the kids and tend to the housework. I just want your name. That's what she's saying. And I got to tell you, this is the social landscape that, quote, gender equality has produced today for women. Once upon a time, women were honored by men. They, they were hand, women were handled with kid gloves. They were treated as special. Men sacrificed for women so that they could stay home and that they could raise the children. And yet there in the mid-70s, feminism demanded freedom from male authority. Women's liberation fought for equal treatment for both men and women. But here's what feminism didn't realize. Equal is how men treat each other. You pull your weight, I'll pull mine. That's equal treatment. And women now have equal treatment, but it turns out that's not really what most women want. That's not as good a treatment as you had before. Women long to be treated as special and as important and as honored and as ladylike. You see, true masculine leadership, it doesn't dominate a woman. It elevates her quality of life. Well, here there's a man shortage. He goes on in verse 2. He says, In that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and appealing for those of Israel who have escaped. Now God makes three promises in the wake of the judgment that Isaiah predicts. First, the branch shall be glorious. Now understand the branch was a messianic term. Messiah is a branch from David's family tree. You remember God promised King David a dynasty of rulers that would ultimately produce an everlasting ruler who would sit on an eternal throne. Jesus is the branch. Second, Isaiah promises restoration and amazing prosperity for Israel. He says, after this judgment, the fruit of the earth shall be excellent. And then thirdly, a remnant or a group of Jews will escape the judgment to begin again. This prophecy gave hope to the future. It speaks to the Jews' future even today, that at the end of the Great Tribulation, a remnant of Jews will emerge from that terrible time, and they'll live for a thousand years in the shade of a new ruler, the branch, Jesus Christ, who will return to the earth to sit on Israel's throne, restore God's people, and cause their prosperity. Now, since Isaiah's prophecy is going to swing now back and forth from his day to the last days, let me give you sort of a brief outline of the scenarios that are going to end this current age. Today, God is growing His church. When He's done, this church is going to get raptured, or it's going to get snatched away. We're going to get taken to heaven. And God is going to once again turn His attention toward Israel. Now, because Israel has refused to trust Christ Jesus... God is going to allow them to be double-crossed by the Antichrist. This world leader will launch a global revolt against God, which God is then going to put down with a flurry of cataclysmic chaos. 
God's plagues culminate in a war where Jesus returns to establish his kingdom. It takes far too much suffering and too much bloodshed. But finally, Israel believes and embraces Jesus as their Messiah. And in the new world that emerges, that that continues then for a thousand years, Israel prospers and Jesus rules the world in justice and peace. That's what's coming for this world in a nutshell. Well, he, he talks about this. He says, and it shall come to pass that he who is left in Zion, when, it, when it's all done, he who's left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who is recorded among the living in Jerusalem, when the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the blood of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning. Notice God's final judgment what the scripture calls the great tribulation. It'll last seven years and it'll have two purposes. The world will be punished, but Israel will be purged or purified. It's one period of time, but it impacts two groups differently. We're told, then the Lord will create above every dwelling place of Mount Zion and above her assemblies a cloud and smoke by day and the shining of a flaming fire by night, for over all the glory there will be a covering. This is an amazing promise. The cloud by day and the fire by night will appear again. You remember the smoke and the fire? These have always been symbols of God's presence. In Genesis chapter 15, when God made his strategic covenant with Abraham, when he chose Israel as a people for himself, he appeared to Abraham. As a smoking censer and as a burning torch, the cloud and the fire. When he led Israel through the wilderness, they followed a cloud in the daytime and a pillar of fire by night. When the temple was established, fire fell on the sacrifice and a glory cloud filled the Holy of Holies. Even on the day of Pentecost, tongues of fire were seen over the heads of the disciples and the Holy Spirit filled filled the followers of Jesus with the cloud of glory. Even today, God's presence in us acts like a fire in a cloud. It burns away our sin. At the same time, it creates a sense of His holiness or His heaviness. We're told in verse 6, And there will be a tabernacle for shade in the daytime from the heat, for a place of refuge and for a shelter from storm and rain. Zechariah 14, verse 16, predicts in the kingdom age, citizens of the world will come to Jerusalem to worship Jesus there. And apparently provisions will be made for the crowds, adequate shade from the sun and shelter from the storms. And isn't that fitting? Why wouldn't Jesus make such provisions? Because isn't that what he's done for us? Shade from the heat, shelter from the storm. It's fitting that in that day he provides the same for all men. Well, chapter 5 begins, Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. Now notice Isaiah the prophet becomes Isaiah the poet. He sings a song. He dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. Even today, vineyards dot the hillsides all around Jerusalem. 
In fact, in the Old Testament, the grapevine was a symbol for the nation Israel. The doors of the temple were carved with golden grapevines. Vine is a symbol of joy. And this is what Israel is supposed to bring to God, joy. This is why he plowed and he planted and he weeded and he spent so much time and effort cultivating Israel. But instead of producing good grapes, Israel yielded wild grapes. Told in verse 3, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard that, that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? He's saying the vineyard was not, the failure of the vineyard was not God's fault. You know, God did all that he could. The problem was that the men of Judah sinned and rebelled against him. He says, and now please let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it shall be burned. And break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned or dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. Because of his people's sin, God removed the protection and the cultivation of the vineyard. It's now vulnerable to break-ins and takeovers, weeds and droughts. Hey, understand, there is a limit to God's perseverance. This is true for both Israel of old, and it's also true for Christians today. All you got to do is read John chapter 15 in the parable of the vine and the branches and you learn similar lessons. The branch that doesn't bear fruit, he, he lops off. Hey, push God's patience and there will come a time when he'll give up on turning your heart and he'll give you over to the independent life that you've stubbornly pursued and demanded. Resist God to a point and he'll remove that hedge of protection around you. He'll remove that blessing from your life. And he'll remove the opportunities, the rain, the opportunities for fruitfulness. That's a scary thing to me. Is that not a scary thing to you? God forbid that he remove that hedge of protection and that that promise of prosperity from my life. Well, the rest of chapter 5 consists of six woes that God pronounces on Judah. Verse 8. Woe to those who join house to house. They add field to field till there is no place where they may dwell alone in the midst of the land. Isaiah is condemning the overcrowding conditions in Jerusalem. Even in Isaiah's day, developers were cramming houses together. I can't believe it whenever I drive somewhere and they've got these little houses and there's no yard anymore. I mean, you can shake hands with your neighbors by leaning out your bathroom window. The houses are just all crammed in there together. Well, even in Isaiah's day, developers were cramming houses together. It was a way to boost up their profits, but it sacrificed healthy living conditions. He says, in my hearing, the Lord of hosts said, truly many houses shall be desolate, great and beautiful ones without inhabitant. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield one bath, and a homer of seed shall yield one ephah. Once fertile land will now be barren, he says. 
A 10-acre vineyard will produce only 9 gallons of grapes. 10 acres, only 9 gallons. You know, here Isaiah is using several ancient measurements. Just for your notes, a bath equals 9 gallons. A homer equals 11 bushels, or 4 bases. If you're a baseball fan, you caught that. An ephah equals one bushel. So a bath equals nine gallons. Hopefully it doesn't take nine gallons for you to take a bath, but it was nine gallons was a bath. A homer equals 11 bushels, and an ephah equals one bushel. Thus it'll take 11 bushels of seed to yield a single bushel of vegetables. That's what he's saying. And And this is what uncontrolled development will do. It'll strip the land of its nutrients. I hope you notice from this verse that that God does care about the environment. Here God goes green. He's concerned about what man does to his creation. When man harms the environment, it eventually brings harm to man. And that's why God is so concerned. Well, he says, Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may follow intoxicating drink. Well, you start drinking in the morning, you're in big trouble. And who continue until night, till wine inflames them. Now here's another woe. Woe to the party crowd, he says. Woe to those who are drinking in the morning and drinking at night. They live for the weekend. They love to get high. They can't wait to wrap their hands around a big cold one. He says, the harp and the strings, the tambourine and the flute, And wine are in their feasts, but they do not regard the work of the Lord, nor consider the operation of His hands. Now certainly drunkenness is a sin. But when I read verse 12, it's as if God doesn't mind the celebration as much as He is insulted by being left out of it. He says they do not regard the work of the Lord. The world parties to forget God. Christians rejoice to remember Him. Someone, someone mentioned about communion. You know, the world drinks to forget, but we come to communion and we drink to remember. To remember Jesus. He says, therefore my people have gone into captivity because they have no knowledge. Their honorable men are famished and their multitude dried up with thirst. Therefore, catch this, Sheol, which was the Hebrew name for hell has enlarged itself and opened its mouth beyond measure. Their glory and their multitude and their pomp, and he who is jubilant shall descend into it. Notice they start out with a cold one in their hand, but in the end they're taken into captivity hungry and thirsty. He says, Sheol or hell is enlarged for them. Apparently, hell grows to fit the demand. Did you know that? Hell grows to fit the demand. And according to Isaiah, the world's party train is headed to hell. Hope you rolled up your windows. (laughs) Notice he says, he who is jubilant shall descend into it. In other words, there's some people that are just going to party all the way to hell. And trust me, there are no cold ones in hell. No big cold ones down in hell. Hope you know that. 
You remember in Luke chapter 16, the rich man, he cried out to Abraham from hell. And he said, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. Sadly, though, no mercy was shown. Don't expect the Coors Light Arctic Express to be running through hell, cooling everything down. There'll be no cold ones in hell. You know, realize drinking may be a matter of conscience, but drunkenness is certainly a sin. Hope you know that. Did you know the only cells in your body that don't replenish themselves are brain cells? Did you know that? The average person is born with about 17 billion brain cells. And each time he or she consumes large amounts of alcohol, it kills off about 10,000 of those brain cells that are never replenished. Now, there's a lot of reasons that I don't drink, but not the least of which is the fact that I need as many of those brain cells as I can keep. My advice to you is don't party your way to hell. Verse 15 tells us, People shall be brought down, each man shall be humbled, and the eyes of the lofty shall be humbled But the Lord of hosts shall be exalted in judgment, and God who is holy shall be hallowed in righteousness. People will be brought down, but God will be exalted. I love what J. Vernon McGee writes in his commentary. Listen to these words and apply them really to the book of Isaiah and all of the prophets. McGee writes, In the thinking of the world, God has been removed from the throne of judgment, divested of his authority, Robbed of his regal prerogative. He has been towed to the edge of the world and pushed over as excess baggage. He is characterized as a toothless old man with long whiskers. Sitting on the edge of a fleecy cloud with a rainbow around his shoulders. He is simple, senile, and sentimental. He does not have enough courage or backbone to swat a fly or crush a grape. His place is in the corner by the fireplace where he can knit. This is the world's concept of God. But this is not the God of the Bible. One day God is going to surprise a lot of foolish and naive people. Trust me. Here we're told men are going to be humbled and God is going to be exalted. He says, then the lambs shall feed in their pasture. And in the waste places of the fat ones, strangers shall eat. When Jesus reigns, there'll be leftovers for everyone. The woe that ends in blessing. This woe here ends in blessing, but there's another woe. He says, woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of vanity and sin as if with a cart rope. And notice here Isaiah's eloquence. This is pointed out uh, by by the... uh, the biblical commentators. You know, Isaiah, he was an educated man because he uses some, some really some very vivid imagery here. Here he speaks of cords of vanity pulling a cart of sin. Think about that. Judah is prideful. You know, they, they think that they can sin with impunity, that they won't get caught. They're pulling a cart of sin with cords of vanity or pride. Nothing's going to happen to them. Verse 19, though, finishes quoting them. 
that say, let him make speed and hasten his work that we may see it and let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come that we may know it. In other words, if God is going to judge us, let's see it. They're reveling in their sin, but then they're mocking God. You know, God doesn't care. God isn't going to judge us. It was Francis Schaeffer who once said, what marks our generation? It's the fact that modern man looks to the universe and thinks nobody is home. We think we're alone. We think that we're not accountable to anyone. We're in for a shock. Verse 20 is a woe for our day. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to men when they rewrite the moral code. And, it, and yet, has this not been done today? I mean, tolerance for homosexuality is seen as a virtue. Whereas opposition is bigotry. Pornography is freedom of expression, whereas resistance to it is oppression. How pornography got to be oppression for women, I have no idea. Seems to me to be the degrading of women. Abortion is a right to choose. Pro-life has become, oh, a form of enslaving women. Hooking up now is a rite of passage for young people. Virginity is what's seen as a dysfunction. It's tragic. We're calling evil good, and we're calling good evil. Anti-Christian rhetoric is protected by the First Amendment today. Biblical teaching is being termed hate speech. As Isaiah said, evil is called good, and good is called evil. The world today has sunk into a moral quagmire. The standards have been turned topsy-turvy. Cultural norms, morals... Mores have been rewritten. But I'm afraid it's the devil who's holding the pen in his hand, not God. Reminds me of the music teacher who picked up a mallet and struck a tuning fork. He said to the class, here's the good news. That's an A. It's an A today. It was an A 5,000 years ago. It will be an A 10,000 years from now. The soprano upstairs sings off key. The tenor across the hall flats on its high notes. The piano downstairs is out of turn. He hit the tuning fork again, struck the note. He says, but that is still an A, and that is really good news. The point is, is that there are some truths that never change. This is the way it is with God's word. This is the way it is with his standards. And despite man's reinterpretation, God's word never changes. What is right is right, and what is wrong is wrong. Verse 21 tells us, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. You remember the proverb, Proverbs 16, 25. It echoes this and exposes its danger. It says, There is a way that seems right to a man. But its end is the way of death. He goes on, Woe to men mighty at drinking wine. Woe to men valiant for mixing and intoxicating drink. Who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away justice from the righteous man. Therefore, as the fire devours the stubble 
and the flame consumes the chaff, so their root will be as rottenness, and their blossom will ascend like dust, because they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore the anger of the Lord is aroused against His people. He has stretched out His hand against them and stricken them, and the hills trembled. Their carcasses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. For all this, His anger is not turned away, but His hand is stretched out still. This verse has a very contemporary ring. Twice before, Scripture predicted and history fulfilled the destruction of Jerusalem. In 586 B.C. at the hands of the Babylonians and in 70 70 A.D. under the feet of the Romans. And yet according to Isaiah, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is outstretched still. The Bible predicts one final invasion of Jerusalem. At the midway point of the Great Tribulation, the Antichrist will break his treaty with Israel and he will launch the invasion. The Jews, in turn, will flee to the wilderness. And here Isaiah sees this last invasion thousands of years before it occurs. Verse 26 tells us, God will lift up a banner to the nations from afar and will whistle to them from the end of the earth. Surely they shall come with speed swiftly. No one will be weary or stumble among them. No one will slumber nor, or sleep. No one will, nor will the belt of their loins be loosed, nor the strap of their sandals be broken, whose arrows are sharp and all their bows bent. Their horses' hooves will seem like flint and their wheels like a whirlwind. Their roaring will be like a lion. They will roar like young lions. Yes, they will roar and lay hold of the prey. They will carry it away safely and no one will deliver. In that day, they will roar against them like the roaring of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and sorrow, and the light is darkened by the clouds. Isaiah depicts this invasion of Israel. God will rally the nations together against Jerusalem to purify His people. And this is an ominous sight. Israel's only defense will be to turn to God. How ironic, the Almighty God who was shoved in the corner next to the fireplace so he could knit, will be the only hope for Israel's salvation and deliverance. Well, that's chapter 5. Thomas Aquinas was a brilliant theologian. He wrote a massive, multi-volume, systematic theology that he called Summa Theologica. He considered his work the sum total of the knowledge of God, summa theological. Yet on his deathbed, he he saw in his heart the glory of God. He had a vision from God. God's spirit revealed God's glory. And Thomas wrote this in response to his vision. He says, what I have seen makes all that I have previously taught and written seem as but chaff or straw to me. You see, this was the kind of vision and calling that Isaiah experienced. He saw God in all of His glory. And the vision he records here in chapter 6 shaped Isaiah's life and molded his ministry forever. In fact, this was the turning point in Isaiah's life. Chapter 6 begins. In the year that King Uzziah died, 
Now, now the vision that Isaiah saw was so monumental that he never forgot the date. It was 740 B.C., the year that King Uzziah died. You know, Hebrew tradition suggests that Isaiah was a younger cousin of this good and godly King Uzziah. The king was Isaiah's mentor, sort of a spiritual dad, that perhaps they had the same kind of relationship that Moses had with Joshua or that Paul had with Timothy. But now, all of a sudden, Uzziah is gone. This was the year that King Uzziah died. Isaiah had lived his whole life in the shadow of this godly king, but now he's on his own. And you know, we all experience this kind of turning point at some point in our lives. For some people, it occurs when they, when they leave home for the first time. For others, it happens when a friend or a spiritual mentor moves out of state or even passes away. You know, I'll never forget uh, speaking to a mentor of mine about the calling that I felt God had placed upon my life to start a church. And I went to him, and, and I wanted to hear from him. His agreement, you know. I needed that affirmation. I wanted to know what he thought of of my idea. Really, I wanted him to agree with me. But in his wisdom, he refused to answer. And I'll never forget what he told me. He said, Sandy, he said, there comes a point in all of our lives when you have to listen to God for yourself. That's the best thing he could have said to me. You know, it's true. When When you have nothing left but God, then for the first time, you become aware that God is enough. And that's a turning point we all need to reach. That's exactly what Isaiah learned in the year that King Uzziah died. Suddenly, it was time for Isaiah to dial direct, time to forge a firsthand relationship with God. Once Uzziah Uzziah was out of the way, it's interesting, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord. Perhaps his eyes were on Uzziah too much. But now Uzziah is gone. Now he says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Isaiah saw God's sovereignty. He was sitting on a throne. He saw God's splendor. He was high and lifted up. He saw God's superiority. That the train of his robe filled up all of the temple. In Hebrew, the word train is translated shul, which refers to the hymn or the fringe at the border of a, of a robe or a garment. In the ancient world, that hem or that of a garment, that, that border, represented the person's authority. And, and the, the type of hem uh, denoted the degree of authority that that person carried. This is why the priests wore special embroidery on the hem of their robes. You remember David insulted Saul By doing what? By clipping off the hem of his robe. In Ezekiel 16 verse 8, God makes a covenant with Israel and he confirms it by covering her with the hem of his robe. This is what's going on when Boaz proposes to Ruth. Remember what he did? He took her under his wing or literally he he brought her under the corner of his robe. There was nothing sexual going on there. He was just, by bringing the robe over her, he was symbolizing that she was going to come under his authority. You recall the woman hemorrhaging blood? She'd been bleeding for 12 years. She received her healing when she did what? When she reached up by faith and grabbed the hem of his robe. It was her way of surrendering and submitting to Jesus' authority. 
But when Isaiah sees the train of God's robe filling up the temple, he realizes that God is sovereign and that God is strong and that God's authority is unsurpassed. Verse 2 tells us, Above it, above the throne, stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. Now there are two types of angels mentioned in the Bible. Cherubim and seraphim. To my knowledge, this is the only place that the seraphim are mentioned. Seraphim means, the word means, burning ones. But both types, cherubim and seraphim, are found around God's throne. Apparently, seraphim, they have wings. They have six wings, in fact. Isaiah says, with two, he covered his face. The glory of God was too much for the angel to handle, so he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. He was too humble to stand in God's presence, so he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. In other words, he stayed suspended in the presence of God. It represented his constant worship and his tireless service. Well, Isaiah saw and heard these angels. And they they were crying to one another and saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Hope by now you know the word holy. It means set apart. It speaks of God's uniqueness. You know, we say God is love, but when we say God is holy, we're saying that He loves like no one else loves. We say God is faithful, but when we say that He's holy, we're saying He's faithful like no one else is faithful. In other words, a holy God is a cut above. He's in a class all by Himself. No one else compares And notice the angels cry three times, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. This is no doubt a reference to the triune nature of the one true God. Well, verse 4 tells us, And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. Isaiah beholds God's sovereignty, his splendor, his set-apartness, now his strength. Notice God twitches a muscle. And all heaven shakes. The posts start shaking. And the whole house is filled with the exhaust from his glory. So I said, woe is me. Now you think, you see this, you see this. You're in the throne room of God. All of a sudden the veil gets peeled back. You can see from the physical into the spiritual, from the temporal into the eternal, from earth into heaven. You see this, the glory of God. You know, you would think that Isaiah would say, wow. Instead, he says, woe. Woe is me. For up against God's glory, all he can focus on is his own sin. And his own slackness. In fact, he cries out, For I am undone. Man, I got so many loose ends. I got so many areas of my life that aren't what they should be. And I've made statements that I'm ashamed of. He says, He concludes, Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Man, I'm undone. I've said things. Man, my, my lips 
I've had some loose lips. I've said some things I shouldn't have said. Notice Isaiah recognizes the depth of his problem here. He's not just guilty of an occasional slip of the lip. No, he, he says this. He says, I am a man of unclean lips. This characterizes my life. This is my nature to sin. He's saying the problem is not just what I say, but it's what I am. That's my problem. I am a man of unclean lips. The issue is not just what comes out of my mouth, apparently, but it's what's in my heart. This is true for us all. It's not just that we commit sins, but that we have a sin nature. There's a sin that governs us. It's, it's an attitude of rebellion, and, and, and it's the attitude of the flesh that wants to live independently from God. This is the, the attitude that, that he was dealing with. You know, as Christians, we, we so often compare ourselves to the world around us. And we can get pretty haughty. Oh, look how good we are. Sometimes we look at other Christians. And we get smug and self-righteous. Well, I'm better than they are. But boy, when I see God, I realize, whoa, I'm undone. I'm deficient, man. I, I'm slack. I don't stack up. And it's ironic, the clearer we see God, the more unworthy of Him we know we are. It's been said, not until we see God as He really is, do we see ourselves as we truly are. It reminds me of Job's reactions when at the end of his book, he finally saw God. In Job 42, verse 5, he says to God, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. And notice what he does. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. No flesh can glory in the presence of God. What happens next, though, is so encouraging. Notice. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. Understand what happens here. This is so encouraging. This is an example of amazing grace. The posts are shaking, remember. The posts in heaven, the temple is shaking. Angels are singing. The house of God is full of smoke and praise and worship. But suddenly, Isaiah, he confesses his sin. Woe is me. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. And instantly what happens is heaven comes to a standstill. God calls all praise to him. Why? In order to purge one repentant sinner. One person who's, who's asked for forgiveness. God calls off this, this whole extravaganza of praise in order to purge one man who humbles himself and seeks God's forgiveness. Isn't that encouraging? All heaven shifts gears when a repentant heart cries out for forgiveness. Suddenly the emphasis is on purging that sinner, purifying that sinner. God sends an angel. He's been praising God. That, that's what he's been doing. But now he reassigns him. He sends him 
to Isaiah with a coal from the altar to burn out his impurity. You know, we all want to be touched by God, do we not? Oh God, I want you to warm my heart. Oh God, I want you to comfort me. God, I want you to heal me. God, I want you to inspire me. God, I want you to strengthen me. I need to be touched by God. But notice God's first touch is to purify. This is what God wants to do in us. He knows right where to place the coal. Notice, notice he, he put the coal right on what Isaiah had confessed. He was a man of unclean lips, he said. And that's exactly where God put the coal, the burning coal. He put it right on his lips. God knows the exact spot in your life to singe and to purify. I had a mole right here on my uh, shoulder. Kathy was, she's a nurse, and so she was concerned about it. And I had a doctor's appointment, and Kathy said, whatever you, when you go to the doctor, I want you to make sure you get that mole taken off. Looks kind of weird. You need to make sure you get it off. So I went to the doctor and showed him my mole, and he, you know, he burned it off. And so I came home, and I said, honey, I said, you'd be so proud of me. I did, I got that mole burned off. Look, right here. Look right here, it's, it's gone. Got in the wrong mole burned off. I got in the mole on the right side burned off. She was concerned about the mole on the left side. She said that was the one I needed to get. I got confused. I burned off the wrong mole. That, the mole she's worried about, it's still there 15 years later. Isaiah's vision, though, teaches us a truth. That God knows exactly what needs to be burned off in your life. He can put the coal exactly where you need to be purified. Exactly where you need to be touched by Him. Where you need to be forgiven and redeemed and restored. He knows exactly where to put the coal. I love that. God is an exact surgeon. Isaiah's vision here teaches us a truth that many people overlook about God's forgiveness. God's pardon is both judicial and it's effectual. Here's what I mean by that. Yes, it's judicial. Yes, when God forgives us, He tinkers with the ledgers in heaven. My crimes get blotted out. They get taken off the books. That's good. But what God pardons, He also impacts. He purges me. This has an effectual work in my life. In other words, God doesn't just Photoshop my senior portrait. (laughs) He actually removes the mole. He takes the wart off my nose. He doesn't just go in and Photoshop it so the picture looks good. No, he actually goes and takes it off. He changes me. His work is not just judicial. He's not just tinkering the ledgers. No, he's working in your life. He's changing you. He's making you into a different person. He's doing a work in you. His work is effectual as well as judicial. Now once Isaiah is forgiven, he's in a place where he can suddenly hear God speak. He writes, Also, I heard the voice of the Lord. Now so often I'm asked this question, Pastor Sandy, how can I hear God speak to me? And the answer here is very simple. You can't miss God's voice when your heart is right toward Him. 
It's sin that creates static on the line. Isaiah gets purged, and now he can hear God clearly, perfectly. You know, Christians think that they need to strain and extend great effort to hear God clearly. No, I think it's much easier than that. Get your heart right with God. Get specific with your sin. Ask Him to purge you precisely, and His voice will come in loud and clear. You can't miss His will when your heart is right toward Him. You see, after the angel touches his lips with the coal, Isaiah immediately hears God saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And notice here, the Lord refers to himself in the plural pronoun, who will go for us? Uh, Again, another reference to the Trinity, I'm sure. Isaiah tells us, then I said, here am I, send me. Here I am, Lord, I'll go. He volunteers with no hesitation. You know, when God called Moses, Moses had excuses. He said, but Lord, I'm slow to speak. Jeremiah complained that he was too young. Gideon was reluctant and needed confirmation. He needed that fleece. He threw out that fleece before the Lord. God repeated his call to Samuel three times before he tuned in and listened. But Isaiah, he overhears God talking to himself. Who shall I send? You know, God doesn't even speak to Isaiah directly. Isaiah just overhears God speaking. Who will I send? And and he jumps up and he shouts out to God, Here am I! Send me, God! And in verse 9, And he said, Go. Realize God's word to all of us is go. He wants us to be hands to help and feet to do his will. He wants us to be his mouthpiece and trumpet his truth. But before we go, there first needs to be a woe. A woe is me. See, we're not fit to be used by God until we first become broken of our pride and purged of our sin. And this is why we all need a similar vision of God. Again in verse 9, And he said, Go and tell this people, Keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. We've been given good news to share, but notice Isaiah had a tough message to sell. Isaiah's audience will neither understand nor appreciate his prophecies. Apparently, God had an unpleasant task for Isaiah. His ministry will, we're told, make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy. And shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. In other words, rather than open their eyes, God is going to use Isaiah to harden these people's hearts. And it's tragic, but God uses us in similar ways. Oh, we glory when we speak a word and God uses it to open blind eyes. But at times, God might use your words to harden stubborn hearts. God uses us to open eyes or shut eyes, open ears or plug ears, turn hearts or sear hearts, bend knees or bow necks. It's interesting, the same word that can bring God's salvation to one person's heart can confirm God's judgment on another person. 
Isaiah's ministry is not so much intended to deliver the people, but to prepare Israel for judgment. That was his ministry. Afterwards, Isaiah would step up and supply them the hope that they needed to start over. In fact, to prove how unpopular Isaiah's ministry was to his contemporaries, tradition tells us that Isaiah was actually sawn in half by the wicked king Manasseh. That he was arrested and he was put on the rack and they sawed him in two pieces. They sawed him in half. Isaiah died a martyr's death. In fact, Hebrews 11 lists numerous Old Testament characters who gained God's approval through their faith. And it's written there in verse 37, they were sawn in two. And that was, that's thought to be a reference to Isaiah. You know, one other point, modern day critics have done their best to, to do to the book of Isaiah what Manasseh actually did to the prophet per se. They've tried to dismember the book of Isaiah. Because the scope of Isaiah's prophecies are so sweeping, and because he predicts events yet future, liberal critics have questioned the Bible's supernatural origin, and they've tried to cast doubt on Isaiah's authorship. You know, they theorize that the book was actually written by two or three different men scattered out over the centuries, and that's what accounts for these amazing prophecies. They say that one Isaiah wrote the first half of the book, whereas another Isaiah wrote the second half of the book. It's impossible that one man could have foretold the future so accurately, or so the critics say. You know, but this is a very easy theory to refute. In John 12, verse 37 through 41, we find a summary of the ministry of Jesus. And in the passage, John quotes twice from Isaiah. It's very interesting. First, he quotes Isaiah 53, verse 1. What the critics claim was written by the second Isaiah. Yet afterwards, John quotes our text right here, Isaiah 6, verse 10. What the critics say was written by the first Isaiah. But listen to John as he prefaces his quote on verse 11. He says, because Isaiah said again. Obviously, John believed that it was the same author who quoted from both sections of Isaiah. So the same author wrote all of Isaiah, according to John. And I'll trust John's word over these other guys. John in the New Testament understood that one Isaiah wrote all 66 chapters of Isaiah. Well, back to our text here, verse 11, finishing up. Isaiah isn't really looking forward to his ministry. He wonders how long he'll have to preach to these stubborn people. He says, then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, until the cities are laid waste and without inhabitant. The houses are without a man. The land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Isaiah will need to preach until judgment comes, until the houses are empty, until the land is without inhabitants. What a tough calling that must have been. And yet, the land will never be completely desolate, he says, but yet a tenth will be in it and will return and be for consuming as a terebinth tree or as an oak whose stump remains when it is cut down. In other words, there will always be a remnant of God's people. Here he predicts that one-tenth of the population will survive. And they'll need the truth of God to rebuild. There'll never be a day when Isaiah's prophecy and his preaching is not needed, is the point. 
Notice the last line in chapter 6. So the holy seed shall be its stump. Think of Israel as this majestic tree full of limbs and branches and leaves and fruit. It falls to the forest floor. You, You could have heard, Timber! How great was this fall! Yet though the tree fell, the stump remained. And the stump would grow again. For a remnant of Jews would come back from Babylon in 535 B.C. And from that stump, a messianic branch would eventually grow. Jesus would be born. You know, sometimes this is how it works in our lives. God has to cut us down. Someone yells timber over us. All that's left is a stump. And yet, remember, that stump can grow again. God is faithful. And He's committed to our restoration. And to our future fruitfulness. God is just that way.